Justin, it's a pleasure to be here with all of you this morning. It's always a joy uh, to get to come before you as uh, we explore God's Word, as we discover what He is up to in our lives and in our hearts, how Scripture intervenes with the circumstances of our daily lives. Uh, So we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. I'll be focusing on verses 1 through 8, but I'm going to read through verse 11 just to give you the, the broader context of this passage. So hear now the word of the Lord. Judge not, that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for uh, all the small things that have happened to us this day, this week, this year, over the course of our lives that have brought us to this ordained moment, where you have brought each one of us before this particular passage as particular, unique image bearers who you created. You came up with the idea of each of us from eternity past, and you have brought us here today together this morning. Let us feast upon your word. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Lead us to repentance, to conviction, to comfort, to encouragement. Give us what we need, Lord, for that is what we ask that we would entrust to you what is best for us and that you would give that to us and we would trust that you love us more than we love ourselves, that you know us more than we know ourselves, and that you are more committed to our good than even we are. We ask all these things in the magnificent name of Jesus. Amen. So one of my favorite uh, Disney movies is the movie Tangled. If you're not familiar with Tangled, you may, uh, you, all you really need to know is it's the story about Rapunzel, a princess. Uh, if you know the story of Rapunzel, you know that she was locked up in a tower at a young age. She was kidnapped by this evil woman and taken from the kingdom to which she was the heir. And as she grew up, at least in the movie Tangled, this is how it's presented, she became a willing but deceived captive because she had been raised from infancy to believe that it was only in the tower that she could find safety and security. 
She was told that outside of the tower awaited nothing but danger and evil and pain and suffering. Her captor, the evil witch who proclaimed to be her mother, the one who truly loved her, has unwittingly tricked her, or has tricked her so that she unwittingly submits herself to a way of life that she believes is the only way of life available to her. In her ignorance, she is living in this tower as a captive. But as she grows older, she begins to see the cracks in the world that this evil witch has created. It begins to rip apart at the seams, and Rapunzel discovers that her whole life has been a lie. That there is a world and a life out there, away from the tower, that is her real life, her true life, as the heir to a great kingdom. The light of reality exposes the lies that she has been fed and that she has lived upon and that she has believed her entire life. And this is what Jesus is doing for us in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, we are born into this world blinded and deceived by our sin. We are willing captives in towers of depravity. Every single part of us has been affected by sin in some way or another, and Christ is light. He reveals what is real and what is true. He provides a new way of understanding reality and engaging reality, ourselves and others and God in this world. Jesus shows us the paths that truly lead to life. And in doing so, he exposes the lies that we have spent our whole lives believing. He exposes the lies that we have built our lives upon, the ways of living that we have been raised in that harm us, harm others, keep us enslaved to the domain of sin and darkness, and keep us in active rebellion against God, divorced from the life that God intended for us. This is a passage about sanctification in the Christian life. It is a passage about what it means to really immerse ourselves in the truth of the gospel, not just as an intellectual bit of information that we assent to, but as something that transforms not only our thinking, but our feeling, our capacities for action, and our desires. The way that this is described in the Bible is putting off sin, as Justin said earlier, and putting on righteousness. To put off sin, we must see it in all of its destructive evil. And to put on righteousness, we must discover how it leads us to the kind of life that we were made for, a new way of life available only to those who enter through Jesus. Jesus addresses two ways in this passage that we try to control our circumstances and control others in ways that hurt us, hurt others, and put us in the place of God. And then he invites us to consider a new, heavenly, gospel-immersed way of life. He talks about how we control people through this act of judgment. Jesus is not talking about God's judgment here. When he says, judge not, that you not be judged, he is talking about how we judge other people human beings, how we judge other people, and what happens in relationships when we try to control people by judging them or by condemning them. And one thing to note here is that Jesus is not saying 
that we should never make distinctions or tell people the truth. If he was saying that, then this very passage would be null and void. Jesus is talking about something particular. Uh, he is, in many, as he does in many other places in his Sermon on the Mount, he's addressing the heart behind our actions. Let me illustrate this by giving you two examples. Can you hear and feel the difference in my heart when I tell somebody, excuse me, you have something in your teeth. I didn't want you to embarrass yourself, so I wanted to let you know, and, and hopefully you can figure out what to do about that. Uh, versus me looking at someone and saying, what's wrong with you? Don't you know how to use a mirror? Can't you get that out of your teeth? Because if you don't, everyone here is going to think that you are a fool. Right? Do you feel the difference in how I am presenting this information? And what I'm trying to do versus telling someone the truth versus telling them the truth in a way that belittles them, that condemns them, that makes them feel less than someone else. This is what Jesus is addressing. He's not talking about telling the people the truth, telling people the truth in love, but he is talking about how we tend to condemn people in order to puff ourselves up and to push others down. He says, do not judge. Because when you judge someone else, what you do is you sow judgment into the world and into your life. The ways that you condemn others spread condemnation, and they will come back and they will harm you. I work with college students. I've been the campus minister at uh, Mercer with Reformed University Fellowship for almost five years, and I see regularly the evil effects of a life that has been sown in condemnation. I talk to students who have grown up in families where condemnation is the, the normal way of relating and talking and living with one another and with the people in their communities. I sit with students who have eating disorders that stem from their family constantly commenting on and condemning them and others based on their weight, based on how they dress, based on how they look, based on how they carry themselves. I have met students who have deep within them a spirit of condemnation that stems from their families teaching them how to condemn other image bearers of God based on their jobs, their economic bracket, their skin color, their zip code, their political party, their school choice, their parenting style, their theological camp, what they say and do and post on social media. And it teaches these students that it's okay to condemn people. And one day those students are gonna turn around and unless God's grace intervenes, they're gonna to begin to condemn their parents. All these acts of condemnation, what are they? They are subtle attempts to manipulate and to control people. To tell people, you better never be overweight. Because if you do, if you become overweight, then you're no longer lovable. You're no longer valuable. No one's going to want to marry you. No one's going to want to be with you. You better never vote this way. Because if you do, I will disown you. All the money that I give you, it will be gone. Right? What are we doing when we say, you better not do, believe, feel X, Y, or Z. Because if you do, then you no longer matter. What we do when we do this is we hold people's dignity hostage with condemnation, and we threaten them with shame, 
what we really are doing is we are telling them that if they do something, if they feel something, if they desire something, if they think something, then we will sentence them to relational hell with us. What we're doing when we condemn people is we put ourselves in the place of God, and it's an act of spiritual rebellion that will eventually blow up in our face. Are condemning people gracious? Are condemning people trustworthy? Are condemning people curious? No, they are not, which means our acts of condemnation will continue to come back and bite us. They will condemn us to a life of isolation, blindness, and anger as we live in the tower of our own sin. And guess what? The door to that tower is locked from the inside. We're keeping it locked when we condemn others and teach people to condemn others. One question I would have for you that I would encourage you to take with you from, from this morning is, would you be willing to ask someone who knows you well, how do I condemn people? How do I judge people? How do, what do I do that makes you and others feel belittled or inferior? Do you have the humility to ask that question of someone who really knows you? Could someone answer that question to you without you becoming defensive and condemning in return for them kindly telling you the truth? I think that's a great sign of our understanding of the gospel of grace is whether we can ask that question and whether we can honestly hear the answer to that question. But condemnation isn't the only way we try to control things. We also seek to control people through helping them. And I use that in quotes intentionally. And by helping them, I mean taking inappropriate responsibility for others in ways that allow us to avoid taking responsibility for ourselves. This is what Jesus is talking about in verse 3. He says, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but not the log in your own eye? He's saying, Why are you obsessed with the problems of other people that you can do very little about, rather than focusing on the actual problems in your life that you can take responsibility for? You see, we obsess over the royal family, over Taylor Swift, over a college football team. We debate their circumstances, and we debate the decisions swirling around them. Uh, but we can also do this with our neighbors, with our friends, with our children. We become so obsessed in the things of this world that we have no control over that we ignore what's actually going on in our, our own hearts and lives. We obsess over the problems of, of others while we fixate uh, on them and ignore the fact that we're drowning in credit card debt, unable to get out, not stewarding the resources that God has given us. We fixate on our neighbors and the political signs that they put in their yards while ignoring the growing problems in our marriages or the sin that is festering in our own lives. We read the Bible to our children to instill them with a moral foundation, yet never truly deal with our anger problems. We never repent to our children. We never actually model the gospel in any meaningful way by showing them grace or extending them the opportunity to give us grace. You see, when we obsessively focus on others, we guarantee that we will never grow and we guarantee that we will never change, right? It is much easier for me to blame my frustration about the ways uh, that my son is disobedient on him not submitting to authority 
than it is for me to actually acknowledge that what really frustrates me is that he is disrupting my worship at the idol of comfort. The problem isn't that he doesn't understand authority. The problem is that I am so obsessed with being comfortable that I get angry with him whenever he disrupts that idolatrous worship of comfort. It's much easier for me to blame my loneliness on other people rather than honestly admitting that I make it pretty difficult to be my friend. When I constantly interrupt conversations or make every story about myself or expect other people to take initiative with me but never take initiative with anyone else. When these things happen, we guarantee that the people around us will never really grow or change and that we will never really grow or change. Jesus addresses this also in verse 6. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. What is Jesus talking about here? This is a strange verse, and I think it's often misunderstood. We typically understand this verse to be saying, don't give something precious to someone who can't uh, appreciate it, because if they can't appreciate it, they're going to hurt you. And there is truth to that statement. But Consider this the situation that Jesus is presenting to us, right? If you are a person and you are quoting scripture at a dog and telling the dog to repent, if you're throwing pearls at a pig thinking the pearls will see the value in the pearls, who is the fool in that situation? Me or the dog? Me or the pig? What Jesus is saying is that we are fools when we try to force good things on people in ways that we should never do. Dogs can't appreciate what is holy. Pigs can't see the value in a pearl. And if you pelt a pig with pearls long enough, hoping you can force them to see their value, eventually you will be attacked, Jesus says. You see, we try to control people by forcing good things upon them, don't we? But an overbearing authoritarian approach to relationships will harm us in the end. People myself included, and yourself included, I would imagine, do not like having good things forced upon them. I cannot tell you how many burned-out college students I have talked to who had sports, AP classes, extracurricular enrichment activities, Bible verses shoved down their throats as ways to help them without their opinions or thoughts or desires or feelings ever being taken into account in any way whatsoever. Dallas Willard, the Christian philosopher about writing about this passage, says, Frankly, our pearls are often offered with a certain superiority of bearing that keeps us from paying attention to those that we are trying to help. We have solutions. That should be enough, shouldn't it? We don't actually need to know someone's heart. And very quickly, when people refuse our pearls, contempt, impatience, anger, and condemnation slips in, forcing religion upon the young, even though it makes no sense to them and we make no effort to explain it to them, is a major reason why they graduate from church about the same time they graduate from high school. How do you feel when you share your heart with someone? When you tell them about a problem in your life and they immediately start telling you all the books to read, all the podcasts to listen to, all the Bible verses that you just need to believe in a little more, as they try to forcefully fix you instead of sympathizing with your pain. Now remember, all these things are valuable, right? Pearls are valuable, but the way that we deliver the pearl matters. Jesus is saying that the way that we relate to people is actually more important than what we try to give them. 
that we can try to give them exactly what they need, but if we give it to them in a way that they are not able or ready to receive, we will force something good upon them in a way that actually leads to harm. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together writes, As only Christ can speak to me in such a way that I may be saved, so others too can only be saved by Christ himself. This means that I must release the other person from every attempt to regulate, coerce, and dominate him with my love. Thus, spiritual love will speak to Christ about a brother more than to a brother about Christ. It knows that the most direct way to others is always through prayer to Christ. Let me ask you this question. Do your actions reveal that you believe you have the power to direct people's lives, that it's your job to be the Holy Spirit, to convict people, to convert people? Or does your life reflect that you believe ultimately God is the only one who has the power to direct and save and convict people? Right, do we claim to have a reformed understanding of God's sovereignty while functionally living as if it is all up to us? Welcome to the club. I'll get you a membership card. Right, this is something we all struggle with deeply. We want to control people because we love them, but our oppressive, dominating love ultimately drives us away from them because it puts us in a position where we are no longer depending on God, but we are depending upon ourselves. Are we able to take responsibility for ourselves and the logs in our own eyes instead of trying to focus and control the people and the circumstances around us? Do we avoid the logs in our own eyes to hypocritically fill our lives with efforts so that we can fix the specks in other people's eyes? Have we ever considered that maybe what our family, what our friends, what our coworkers, what the body of Christ most needs from us is for me to be repentant? That that's the most important thing I can offer in any relationship for me to be healthy, for me to be holy, not for me to hypocritically obsess over the health and holiness and repentance of others while ignoring the logs in my eye. Could it be that many of the problems that we see in others are actually the result of us not taking responsibility or ownership for the lives that God has given us to govern? In just a few verses past this passage, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's who's going to enter. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that a lot of people will do things in Jesus's name, but they're, what they're really doing is they're just using Jesus as a stamp of approval to do what they want to do, to live how they want to live, to control people how they want to control them, and they will use Scripture as a tool to destroy others or to dominate others or to control others. Are we concerned with our will and using God as that stamp of approval, or are we concerned with doing God's will, even if it means repenting, even if it means not getting our way, even if it means admitting that we are wrong? These are the sins that we have been raised in, 
We need not look far to see more and more examples of these. These are the towers of depravity where we have lived all of our lives. And Jesus comes to set us free. He comes to bring us into salvation and to bring us into the process of sanctification, which the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines as the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Up to this point, we have considered the sin within us that God's grace by his Spirit enables us to die unto. And now we consider the righteousness, the, the, the life that Jesus invites us to live unto, to put on. He invites us to become the kinds of people whose primary concern is taking the log out of their own eye, who take responsibility for themselves and love people without controlling or trying to dominate them. Now, lest we fall into pharisaical moralism or legalism, please hear me when I say that the foundation of Jesus' teaching here, the foundation of the whole Sermon on the Mount, is the gospel of grace. The good news that Jesus came to defeat sin, to take the wrath of God against sin upon himself on the cross as a substitute for his people, and to impute those people with his righteousness so they can live in perfect fellowship with God and with one another forever. And we receive this salvation, according to Christian doctrine, as a free gift through no effort of our own by faith alone. It is this gospel received by faith that bestows upon us the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to be conformed into the image of Christ. You see, it is only through the power of God that any of this can happen that Jesus is talking about. And the gospel message is that through Christ, we are enabled to become the kinds of people who can die unto condemning others, who can die unto controlling others, who can die unto sinfully forcing things upon others and begin to be transformed by God's grace into people who are able to take the logs out of our own eyes to begin asking instead of condemning and demanding? What sort of qualities would begin to naturally flow from someone who has received the gospel of grace, not just as a bit of intellectual information, but as a whole life immersed in the worship of and apprenticeship to Jesus Christ? I would submit to you at least three qualities relevant to this passage. One, it requires self-awareness. Grace allows us to be honest about ourselves before God and before one another. For you to take the log out of your own eye requires you to know that there is a log in your eye, which requires you to know yourself truly rather than deceptively. You see, we will often explain away or justify or excuse the logs in our own eyes, which means that we will never repent. We will never become humble because we refuse to be self-aware. But the grace of God tells us that we have already been forgiven. Our sin has already been atoned for, and therefore we should never be afraid to confess sin. We should never be afraid to acknowledge our selfishness or our control because we know that it cannot condemn us anymore. And grace leads us from self-awareness to repentance, where we take our true selves before God, remorseful over our sin, no longer in denial about it, and cast ourselves upon him for forgiveness and healing and grace. 
And then self-awareness and repentance necessarily lead to humility. Because you know you're a sinner. You are acutely aware of how desperately you need a salvation that you could never achieve for yourself. And you know that salvation has been given to you as a gift from Jesus, which means you can never condemn anybody. Because you stood condemned. And Jesus forgave you. He gave you what you could never earn. He gave you what you didn't deserve. So how could we not, if that is being immersed, if we're immersing ourselves in the life of the gospel, become the kind of people who are charitable, who are gracious, because we have received the charity and graciousness of Christ. You see, the gospel changes how we relate to others and to God. Rather than condemning and demanding and controlling and forcing, we ask, we seek, we knock. What do these images capture? They capture a gentleness. They capture capture a curiosity, an openness, a persistent charity and love that flows from a heart that has been gently, curiously, and persistently pursued by the God of the universe. Because here's the thing. If the infinite, omnipotent God used his infinite power to humble himself by taking on human flesh and sacrificially took upon himself the punishment that we deserve for our sins, if that God is your father, he knows what you need. All you have to do is ask. How freeing is this? How freeing might this be? It frees us from trying to anxiously control our circumstances and the people around us. It frees us from feeling like we have to heap shame and guilt upon people in order to get them to do what we want. It frees us from having to prove ourselves with our grades or our athletic achievement or our work performance or our social media platform or through the accomplishments of our children. It frees us to be beautifully honest with our shortcomings and radically patient and gracious toward whatever shortcomings we might see in those around us. Our loving Father will provide everything that we need. All we must do is ask Him. We no longer have to live like orphans who must fend for themselves. Friends, the gospel is not just information. It is an invitation to an entirely new way of life, new thoughts, new desires, new feelings, new capacities for action, the way of life that you were made for, that brings flourishing to your life and to the lives of others and to this world and to your relationship with God. The way of Jesus is the life that we were made to have. If you aren't a Christian, I would ask you, is this something that you want for yourself? If so, I would invite you to consider the life and the work of Jesus. Consider if what he really did and said was, is true and what that would mean for you. If you are a professing Christian, I would ask you this question. Is this what you have? Is this what you have? Or is it possible that you have settled for something less? Only you can answer these questions. I ask it not to scare you or manipulate you or cause you to doubt, but to invite you to consider the places where a log jam of sin has been constructed where grace is bearing down, eager to break through, fervently longing to fill you with joy and laughter, where despair and sorrow reside. And lastly, I have a question for you. Would you be willing to talk to someone about it? You can hear the sermon. You can go home. You can think about it. 
but it probably won't make a difference for you unless you talk to someone about it, if you think it's worth talking about, that is. To ask, to seek, to knock by sharing your heart with another person and inviting them to pray with you and to pray for you. Might that be a small act of faith that God could use to open the floodgates of his transforming grace into our lives? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we know that it does not return void. We know that you are good. We know that you are our Father, and we know all these things because of Jesus. We pray and ask these things in his name. Amen.